Good morning, we're continuing our series in Joshua this morning, so I invite you to read along with me. This is from Joshua chapter 5, starting from verse 13, and continue down to chapter 6 as well. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reference and asked him, What message does my Lord have for this servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came, came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast of the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did it for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seven times around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But kept away, from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. 
All the silvers and gold and articles of bronze and irons are sacred to the Lord and must go into treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every level every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. Joshua said to the men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute house and bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought up her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the article of bronze and irons into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because he hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho as he lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, Curse before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city, Jericho. At the cost of his born son will he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest he will set up its gate. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. This is the word of God. Thank you so much, Eric. So we end with that last, uh, that verse in verse 27, which was bold. And we remember that the conclusion of this entire passage is that the Lord was with Joshua. That's what we've been discussing really in Joshua chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. Now that we're in 5 and 6 today, we still see that God is with this man. And the presence and proximity of God with his people is the precious promise that they are clinging to as they move forward into the promised land. And what I'd like us to see from this text, it's a lot today. Uh, Eric did a great job of reading from chapter 5, 13, all the way through chapter 6. And really, we're going to be even dealing with the first 12 verses of Joshua 5, just in kind of overview fashion, is what the title says, which is that the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. And that is the theme that we see kind of running throughout. We talk about God being faithful on the journey uh, from, from the opening pages of, of Joshua, we know that ultimately the battle always belongs to the Lord. And we see that come out in this text in, in a, a few different ways. And I want to draw three conclusions uh, from that this morning with you too. And really reaching back into chapter 5 verses 1 through 12, which we didn't happen to look at. But when we consider the reality that the battle belongs to the Lord, we have to draw some of these conclusions. Um, looking back in verses 1 through 12, we'll see that since that is a reality, it actually constrains us toward obedience because God is the one fighting the battles in the ultimate sense. What is our response the faithfulness on the journey is all about God's faithfulness to us. But then we have, as Joshua says at the end in Joshua 24, for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. There's an obedience that 
we are constrained to because of the reality that God himself is the one fighting our battles. And there's something like a divine reset. I, I heard this phrase. I don't know if it's a popular phrase today or not, but in a group of other pastors, I heard somebody this week talking about a divine reset around the pandemic, that it's as if God has said, we need to reset our priorities. And there's a divine pause in the entire world to think about the things that matter most to us and how we move forward. And in a sense, that's happening in Joshua 5 verses 1 through 12 because what they're told to do, remember last week they crossed the Jordan River, they're going now to their first conflict against Jericho, and God showed that he is the one who's moving ahead of them, parting the waters, hearkening back to the Red Sea with Moses. And now, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, he says, these men need to be circumcised. That whole generation that had wandered in the desert had not been circumcised. Now, if you're about to ready to prepare for a battle, and you are told to be all the fighting men to be circumcised, they're going to be rendered rather incompetent for a handful of days. Um, I suspect that's a rather painful process for a grown man to go through. And especially since these are the warriors, they're a bit susceptible. But God is doing this because he's reminding them that sign, that symbol, that seal would take them back to the very, very beginning of their relationship with God. I mean, back in, in Genesis chapter 12, God selects Abram, this man who was the nation of Israel, didn't even exist. He calls him and he says, I'm going to build out of you a nation. And that nation is going to be a picture of what it looks like to walk with God in relationships, set apart, distinct. And, and here's the way that we're going to uh, confirm that relationship. It's through circumcision. In fact, if you have your Bibles and look back at Genesis chapter 17, we'll read a little bit about this. When Abraham, in, uh, in, in verse 1, actually, Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, he's 99. I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's what he's calling him to do. There's the, the constraint toward obedience. Be blameless. Walk in my ways. I will confirm my covenant, my agreement between me and you, and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. This was 500 years ago. God is coming to Abram, taking him out of, uh, he, was, he was nothing, and saying, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you'll be a blessing to many nations, and the land where you are right now, I'll give to your descendants. That was 500 years ago. And how does he confirm that? In verse 9, then God said to Abram, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. 
This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So this is going all the way back in Joshua 5 at Gilgal, when they say you need to be circumcised. This is going 500 years ago to remind them this is a sign of the covenant, the agreement between man and God, and God initiates it. He is always the initiator. He is coming to them saying this is a sign, and I will be faithful to the terms of this covenant. You also, because of that, are, are, are to be faithful to me. This, this is, it, it constrains us toward obedience. So if we say that we're walking with God, there, there, there's his commitment to us, and then also our commitment to him. And it's not to be treated lightly. These men, these fighting men getting ready for battle are shown that the battle truly belongs to the Lord, but that sign and that seal of their relationship with him comes through circumcision. So he's driving them back. He's remembering, forcing them to remember the promises of God. And he's putting them in a painful situation where they have to rely on him. And he's reminding them of the covenant with Abraham that it's bigger than even just one particular nation. A divine reset, as it were. You know, CJ, when you go off to college, you get a little bit of freedom. And I know you said you were a difficult person. Maybe a little less difficult when you don't have somebody over, over, over you saying, hey, do this, do this. And yet you do. If you're somebody who has said, I am a follower of God, I am somebody who would call myself a follower of Christ, there, there is a, there's an obligation. It's not to the sinful nature to live toward it. And Paul would say that very clearly. You are being constructed and designed to be in relationship with God and to walk in his ways. And that's the way you flourish, CJ. That's the way any of us do as well. Now, in the New Testament, one of the beautiful things about the New Testament is circumcision was, was bloody and it was for males only. And there's a replacement symbol for it. It's baptism. And the waters of baptism are available to everyone, male and female. The, Christ has already shed his blood. And so these, these waters are, the, the price has been paid by Christ. And as somebody who's been baptized, then you have a claim on your life. And that's, that's the kind of claim that feels oppressive. But the fact of the matter is, if God has fought those battles for you, and he is for you, and he is with you, you can walk with freedom in those realities. It's just, it's just the way God has designed us. And we uh, walk in his ways, we flourish and we thrive. That is reinforced over and over again in the scriptures. CJ, you have an opportunity then to go and to walk in God's ways, but you have to remember, and Paul says later to the, in the book of Galatians, you know, they're struggling with, hey, I became a, a follower of God by his grace, and I don't have to earn anything before him. And then maybe they start feeling like I have to be good so that God's favor will rest on me. And people came along and said, for example, you need to be circumcised or you're not a child of God. And, and Paul reminded them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
That's what matters most. Faith expressing itself through love, not, not the ritual, not that Christ has paid the full price. And now there's an opportunity to express that faith through love. CJ, you're going to make music. How can you express your faith through love and music? What are the ways that your unique calling can be expressed as somebody who's been claimed by God? And recognizing ultimately the battle belongs to the Lord. Because look, I know there are a lot of battles that are being fought. Some of those are out there, but a lot of them are internal. God is committed to you. He who began a work in you, CJ, he who began a work in you will carry it to completions till, till the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to keep fighting battles for you. Now, I think you can see the ready application for those of us who aren't graduating. That this sense of the battle belonging to the Lord doesn't somehow put us off the hook for walking in his ways. In fact, it's the very pathway for us to be able to do it with a measure of freedom in a sense that he is for us in a way that we can't possibly earn. That is what true freedom is about. I heard you say some of that, even when you're talking to your parents. Now, we didn't even get to the part of the text that was read, but we're going to get to that now. Because in chapter 5, verse 13, there's this interesting encounter, and Steve made mention of it. And I want to suggest to you that here we see a pretty graphic image of the battle belonging to the Lord. And that when we understand that, it gives us a divine perspective. Something that's different. You know, in chapter 5, verse 13, there's this figure who shows up. And Joshua, it seems, is maybe the, the night before uh, battle. He is uh, considering Jericho and looking at its walls and, and, and wondering how is this all going to go down. You know, he's a military uh, uh, strategist. He's, he's thinking about the enemy and defenses and what's our offensive way forward and uh, considering, you know, this is my first real test after crossing the waters. I'm supposed to be a warrior and he has proven himself in battle, but here it comes yet again. And we see in verse 13 when he's near Jericho, he looks up and he sees a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And some translations would suggest he's saying, are you on their side? Or, I mean, are you one of them or one of us? And he says, well, I'm neither. I'm a completely different kind of being. That could be the case. But it, it seems here, too, that there's something bigger. There's a divine perspective being given that's bigger than just our earthly understanding. In his response, are you for us or against us? Neither. You know, it's interesting to me. It's like Michigan, Ohio State. Who's God for? I mean, well, you've got to have a godly quarterback on both sides saying in the Super Bowl or whatever. Who's God? Seems to me it'd be kind of silly. That's not the way I think about things, right? There is a divine perspective that transcends, that is beyond things that are simply earthly. It's, it's an interesting tension here because God has certainly called a people out and said, I'm going to give this land I promised to you. And yet at the same time, it's not because you're, you're special or significant. He makes it clear several times to Israel, you were insignificant. Out of my good pleasure, I've selected you. And furthermore, this land that they've been given, they'll lose again. And again. The Ark of the Covenant going before them, lost. So there's something big, there's a divine perspective that goes beyond simply 
something that is identifying with even Israel, the people. They're a picture of God's relationship with those whom he has chosen, not because of anything they themselves have done. And so we have to make sure, too, that when we, we wrap ourselves, it's not in the flag of our nation of choosing, but in the robes of Christ, who transcends all of these things. Who is this figure? Some would suggest this is a theophany. A theophany is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Before his incarnation in John chapter 1, he shows up in advance in, in several places. And, 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 and there's, no, there's no clear description that that's what's happening here. Many theologians that think that that is what's happening, especially because of the response. You remember Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he encounters the burning bush What's his response? Oh, well, the, bu the bush, who's the presence of God and stands for it, says, you're on holy ground. And he bows down and he worships. Same thing happening here. The captain of the Lord's army appears, and the response from Joshua, who was as good of a warrior as predator might have ever been, bows down in reverent worship. See, the battle belongs to the Lord, He's got, he's got this sword. He's fighting the battles. And Joshua, even though he's well armed, his real status before God is to fall in worship. And to recognize I can't trust in horses or chariots, but in somebody who's fighting battles beyond what I possibly can. Amen. At the end of the day, no matter how well equipped and how well armed, the battle belongs to the Lord. And his response is worship. It grants us a divine perspective on what happens. Um, and and it, it reminds us of a couple of things as well. Number one, our world has both material and spiritual elements. This is a really important thing to grasp, especially if you have a Western mindset where we've reduced everything to a scientific ex explanation. You know, the, the Bible's perspective on who we are and what this universe is all about is both material and spiritual. We are material beings. In fact, Christ, when he comes into, into the world, uh, validates and, and shows how significant uh, the material world actually is. He came in the flesh. There are some worldviews that, that minimize the physical reality and say it's bad. But Christ actually says it's good. Even when we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, it's a, a, uh, his body and his blood. And when he raises from the dead, he takes in fish to show that the physical body, we have the hope of a resurrected body. It's a very physical reality, a new heavens and a new earth. The stuff of this earth is something that God has redeemed and is good. But it's not just physical. There is a spiritual element. For those of us in the West, this is probably the part that we don't like so much. You know why? It's hard to control the spiritual world in the same kind of way. You can control an experiment, but when you can't measure it or see it or grasp it, it feels a little less controllable. But what's seen is temporary. What's unseen is eternal. For the West and the Enlightenment and scientific revolutions and uh, man is the measure of all things. 
we said everything, if we can't understand it or, or, or grasp it and reduce it to a scientific experiment, then we, it doesn't exist. And that doesn't square with the Bible's explanation of the universe. If scientists, for example, see a miracle happen, what they will conclude is the data isn't in yet. We don't have all the information. Once we get it all, then we can maybe explain it. The Bible has a very different perspective on this. And when this captain of the Lord's army show up, whether it's a pre-incarnation theophany or just the captain of the Lord's army, an angelic being, we're seeing that things go beyond the grasp of what we can measure necessarily. And that is a radically different perspective. And it could feel uncomfortable, but for those who attach themselves to the God who fights all of our battles, that is a sense of tremendous assurance that can come. Can you really, for example, control everything in your life? If we're reduced to controlling all that we can control, no wonder you have absolutely no sense of hope. You ought to. If you have too much hope, it's false confidence. (laughs) You, You control so little. But if you're attaching yourself to a God who transcends time itself, can insert himself into space and time, whether this is Christ or the captain of the Lord's army, and can bring walls down just by marching around the city seven times, it doesn't make any sense at all. I want to be on that God's side. I mean, sign me up, even if I don't always comprehend it. And we believe there are great rational reasons to attach yourself to this storyline. It's not just made up. There's all kinds of evidence for it. There's rational constructs for it. But at the end of the day, it's beyond what we could possibly comprehend even at that point. And that assures us that the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. We live in a, you know, despite what Madonna said, we live in more than just, not just a material world. It's beyond that. CJ, I wonder how in your music that might be reflected. That that the world isn't just about pursuing things that are physical, whether it's money or experience, um, fast cars, I, I don't know. But there's a spiritual reality. And all of those things are just little shadows of the substance we're chasing behind them. And as we saw last a couple of weeks ago, that substance is in Christ. Everything, these shadows, these, the real substance is Jesus, Christ himself, the Son of God who became incarnate, walked among us, flesh and spirit. And you're born of spirit, not just of flesh. It grants us a divine perspective, but more than that, it reminds us, as we are reminded frequently in the Bible, that the kingdom of God transcends any one nation or culture. I mean, Abram himself proves that point. He was called somebody who didn't have a nation and given a nation. And the people of God, as they advance forward, yes, they're fulfilling God's purposes as they take this land. But as Steve also said, who is it that's left standing at the end of the day but Rahab? She wasn't an Israelite. But she's included and treated as one, a person of the covenant, because of her faith. So here we have Rahab in the lineage of Jesus himself, not an Israelite, 
Christ, humanly speaking, wouldn't be if it weren't for Rahab. She had to be there, and she wasn't even an Israelite. God's kingdom is advancing. It transcends any one nation, any one culture. It's bigger than that. That's a divine perspective. And the captain of the Lord's army, when he says neither, is kind of granting that, us that. Material and spiritual. Transcending any one nation or culture. And then finally, all of chapter 6 as a whole. CJ, I think part of what this shows us is that we can follow God's lead confidently. Um, that, you know, when, when, when you don't know what's happening next, you're headed off to Atlanta, you're doing some music and stuff, but you can't, you've got to keep God ahead of you. You know, this Ark of the Covenant idea, and even ends in verse 27, the final of it, saying God was with Joshua. And Joshua, this great warrior, maybe he was sharpening his blades the night before, getting ready for battle, and getting ready to follow God, who's he's leading him into battle, and this... This message comes to him, here's how you're going to fight it, march around the city with people who are, you know, playing priests, people, people who are leading you in worship, leading the way. Just, just march around. Yeah, but when do we start, you know, just, just march around. Dude, I got this. Just do it. And so let, let me suggest to you that sometimes following God's lead is a little unorthodox by the world's standards. This is not how you fight a battle. I don't know. I didn't go to the Naval Academy and go to any war academies. I, I'm assuming that there aren't a lot of battles that have been fought like this. Just walk around the city and sing some praises. Do it for six days. It's, you know, the last day, seven, seven times. It's like, like the Liberty Bible walkathon, right? <laughs> it's a good thing these walls didn't come down if you're traipsing around this property. That is incredibly unorthodox. And when, you, when you're following God, if you're following God incarnate in the person of Christ, it may look strange. In fact, some people call you a fool for Christ. Um, to us, the message of the cross, it, we believe it is the power. And to others, it's foolishness. And, th and that message, the way God leads us, it's often counterintuitive to the culture. And so one of the challenges, I think, for CJ and all of us is, is to wonder if we look exactly like the culture around us and our responses and, and how we're being led, if we're not that distinctive, are we really following the God who's fighting the battles for us? And what I mean by that is things like this. You know, when, when Jesus was on the cross and people were casting slurs at him and everything, he offered forgiveness. I, I think that's a little strange. I know for me... I have some very colorful language. I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly witty individual, and I've got a decent enough vocabulary and enough pride to lash back out at people in a somewhat passive-aggressive, I've been told snarky way before. That's not the way of Christ. It, it, it's, not to, it's not to dismiss or excuse because I am constrained to our obedience. I repent. I say, Lord, forgive me. I want to run quickly to that. I don't want to minimize the damage of the words that I've said. But if this is true, if God's fighting my battles, why do I feel like I have to fight them so much? The weapon I have is very different. 
Prayer, mercy, grace, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. There's no law against this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nobody has laws against that stuff. And you can, I believe, and I'm growing in this, just like CJ is growing in this, and others have a freedom if God is fighting your battles to respond in a way that's radically different. If the battle truly belongs to the Lord. Seven times around this city, and the walls come tumbling down. I mean, you don't know the impact of an act of mercy or grace, what it's going to have on somebody's life. And again, CJ, I hear you saying that with your parents. Wasn't easy. And probably won't be still. I mean, I'll bet you make life hard for them still a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. But your parents, I know, believe that the battle belongs to the Lord. And that's why they've stuck with you. That, that's, that's, that's why they love you. Because they're, they're serving a king beyond that. And their love for, for you is not fueled just by how much you show love for them, but the God who called them to reach out and love you. And that's a picture of what God has done for each of us. We're all orphans here today. How many here are Jewish by birth? You are? Okay. Here's the one. Thanks for including us. We're all Gentiles. Yeah, all of, each, each one of us. None of us deserves to be here. And it's because of, because of what, what somebody like Rahab, she's our spiritual ancestor, who's, who said, I don't deserve this, but I'm yielding everything to God. And I'm saying, I believe the battle belongs to the Lord. And I'm, I'm guessing there are a lot of ways you can apply it in your own life if you feel overwhelmed, hopeless, frustrated, 500 years for this to come about. It may be in your lifetime you don't see the things you long for. But if the battle belongs to the Lord, that's okay. If the kingdom of God endures forever and it transcends anything you're capable of doing, have hope and strength and courage. And your call is to be faithful to what God has put in front of you and he'll take care of the results. Who needs to hear that this morning? I do. So I'll say it again. <laughs> you be faithful to what God's called you to do, and he will take care of the results. He will fight those battles. And he's already proven that he's done that. Is he with us? Yes. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before us endured the cross, of the scorn, endured the cross scorning and shame, sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and even now is praying for us. Fighting battles in the heavenlies we can't possibly measure. And the fact that we live in a material world does give purpose to the material things. Some of us might be so consumed with that we don't see the spiritual. Some of us might be so consumed with the spiritual we don't know we live in a material world. It's a both and. And we see those come together not only in the person of Christ, but right here in this text. As the captain of the Lord's army draws a sword a figure of battle that's moving forward in a heavenly way that can't possibly be controlled by man. 
And I hope that gives us a sense of freedom, of peace, of hope as well, as a renewed commitment, a divine reset to obedience for the God who's gone before us and is fighting our battles. Father, I do pray for my heart, all of our hearts, really, as we take in the, the message of this text and reflect on how you have initiated so many things. And there's so much happening in this text. We haven't covered all of it. We could call more truths from it. And there are some things to grapple here. We will in, in the weeks ahead too. What does this mean to be uh, these things that are devoted to, to the Lord? And, and there's some, some things happening that we want to tease out and understand better. But we know that this is your sovereign goodness extended to Rahab and to Joshua, a reminder of that, and to all these people, a reminder of the way that you have moved toward them in circumcision, and the opportunity we have to remember as well that this constrains us not only to obedience, but grants us a divine perspective and allows us to follow his lead confidently, no matter what may be ahead of us. I pray that for CJ again. I pray that for me. I pray that for all those who are here today and even those who couldn't who would align with this church family that we would as a congregation know that the battle ultimately belongs to the Lord and recommit a divine reset to walking in your ways and being faithful on the journey because of it in the days ahead. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.